Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2013 AWP conference in Boston. The recording features readings by David Oshinsky, Amanda Ochter, Jacob Friedman, Hal Sierowitz with Minter Kratzer, and Raphael Campo. You will now hear Suzanne McConnell provide introductions. Thank you all for coming, uh, and welcome to Illness as Muse, 10 plus years of the Bellevue Literary Review. We started in September 2001. We're thriving, we have a stupendous editorial team, and vivid, wise writing, as you will soon see. So I am going to introduce our readers, and we're going to start. David Oshinsky is our first reader. He holds the Jack S. Blanton Chair in History at the University of Texas and is a distinguished scholar in residence at NYU. His books include A Conspiracy So Immense, The World of Joe McCarthy, which was a New York Times <coughs> Book of the Year. Uh, another, Worse Than Slavery, was awarded the Robert Kennedy Book Prize for its distinguished contribution to human rights and Polio, An American Story, won the Pulitzer Prize for History. So with no further ado. Thank you. Uh, I came up from Austin, Texas last night. I realized last night how much I missed Boston. I woke up this morning and realized why I had left. I'm going to read uh, to you from uh, a sh very short essay I wrote about Bellevue Hospital. Bellevue is quite literally a New York institution. Among the nation's oldest hospitals, it has served the city for nearly three centuries, and its medical achievements are immense. Yet what we most know and remember about Bellevue, what our popular culture demands we know and remember, is but one fragment of a fabled history its association with madness. It may be unfair, and it does seem outdated, but this particular image has endured for generations, enveloping the institution like a straitjacket. Bellevue, we are told, is where the world's greatest city has long deposited those too crazy to walk its streets, making it sad to say the Alcatraz of hospitals. It's not hard to see why. I'm calling Bellevue because you're nuts, Ralph Cramden would regularly tell his wife Alice and the honeymooners when he wasn't threatening Bang Zoom to send her to the moon. <laughs> that millions of television viewers in the 1950s could knowingly laugh along without further explanation made Bellevue perfect for a comics punchline or a film director's set. Billy Wilder's Lost Weekend in 1945, the Academy Award winner, talked about extreme alcohol distress and took place at Bellevue. So too did the 1947 classic Miracle on 34th Street, in which the stubbornly proud Chris Kringle, dressed in drab hospital garb and kept in a tiny cell with barred windows, purposely fails his psychiatric examination. Weary Bellevue officials banned cameras from the facility after that, forcing producer Daryl Zanuck actually to shoot this set in Los Angeles. And who could blame him? Declaring Chris Kringle incompetent is not exactly an image builder. It didn't help matters that Bellevue was a short ambulance ride away from Greenwich Village. As such, it became a revolving door 
the legions of writers and artists in various states of mental distress. William Burroughs spent time there after cutting off a finger to impress his lover. Delmore Schwartz arrived in handcuffs following an attempt to strangle the critic Hilton Kramer. I'm sure there was a line for that one. Eugene O'Neill stopped in so often, he was on a first-name basis with the staff. Norman Mailer was committed after stabbing his wife. Some, like Allen Ginsberg and Richard Yates, memorialized Bellevue in their work. Quote, a few were smoking with packs of cigarettes in their pajama tops, Yates wrote in Disturbing the Peace. Quote, then he saw they weren't wearing pajama tops, but straight jackets, and he wanted to whimper like a child. The list goes on. Malcolm Lowry, Gregory Casso, Sylvia Plath, all wound up at Bellevue after suffering nervous breakdowns. Saxophonist Charlie Parker committed himself following two suicide attempts in 1954. As you may know, he died the following year. Bassist Charlie Mingus also went voluntarily, it was said, to escape a business dispute with the mobster Joey Gallo. Among the patients he met, Mingus recalled, was a man who kept calling Dwight Eisenhower on a fake telephone and a chess champion, 15 years old, a sandy-haired teenager who spoke seven languages. He was a genius, I guess, Mingus said. His parents had committed him, and he told me he didn't know why. Of course, it was Bobby Fischer. Mingus later composed the jarring Hellview in Bellevue to reflect the mania he found inside. <laughs> Historians like to get to the bottom of things. We know that New York's original almshouse, the forerunner of Bellevue, contained a separate floor for lunatics complete with a whipping post. We know as well that New York City opened an enormous facility in the East River in 1839 known as Blackwell's Island. And Blackwell's Island really became the main mental facility, and Bellevue had the lesser chore of deciding who would be sent there. These evaluations would be done for years in an overcrowded facility at Bellevue, a pavilion no different from other parts of the crumbling hospital. How then did Bellevue's singular reputation emerge? Enter Nellie Bly. She had come to New York from Western Pennsylvania in the 1880s, determined to write. Her, her arrival coincided with a fierce newspaper circulation war, featuring stories, splashy photos, simple words. Bly was fearless and inventive. Hooking up with Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, she pursued subjects seen as too dangerous for a woman, posing as an unwed mother to expose a baby buying ring, getting herself arrested to look at the police system. Bly became an international sensation in 1889 when inspired by Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. She got Joseph Pulitzer's very wealthy friends to fund her own trip and she beat Verne's record by a week. But her first story for the world was probably her most important, appearing in two lengthy installments and then as a book titled, Ten Days in a Madhouse. <coughs> Press reports of abuse in New York's various institutions were already common fare. They contained hair-raising details, as exposés often do, and were particularly popular among the working classes who populated these mental institutions. The lunatic asylum at Blackwell's Island had been a target for years, 
Charles Dickens in his American Notes, published in 1842, wrote that, quote, I've never felt such deep disgust and measureless contempt as when I crossed the threshold of this madhouse, Blackwell's Island. But no one until Melly Bly had ever tried to write from the inside, from the patient's point of view. Bly's plan was daring, to say the least. She checked into a boarding house in New York City, feigned insanity, and was carted off to police court, where the judge ordered her to go to Bellevue for observation. There, she pretended to hear voices and clearly, in her words, appear deranged. Her strategy worked. The doctors at Bellevue concluded she was suffering from dementia, undoubtedly insane, and she was shipped off to Blackwell's Island. Bly portrayed Bellevue as, quote, the third station on my way to the island, the boarding house and police court being numbers one and two. She vividly described the crowded wards at Bellevue, the, the freezing temperatures, the filthy bedding, the moth-eaten clothing, and she claimed that many of the inmates there had been wrongly uh, deemed insane and incompetent. But Bellevue wasn't Bly's primary target, and a careful reading of her expose showed it to be more of a negligent institution than an intentionally brutal one. The real villain was Blackwell's Island, a grim expanse where sadistic staffers made the rules. Quote, my teeth chatted and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue with cold, Blue reported. I got one bucket of ice water in the face after the other. My eyes, my ears, my nose, my mouth. I think I experienced the sensation of a drowning person as they dragged men gasping and shivering and quivering from the tub. For once, I did feel insane. All the doctors fooled, screamed the headlines. No attempt was made to separate one stop along the way from the other in Nellie Bly's descent into hell. Bellevue and Blackwell's Island were fused together, two snake pits, equally culpable, equally grim. Worse, the image played right into Bellevue's already perilous reputation as a place for the friendless, those with nowhere else to go. In the coming years, Bellevue's psych wards would become a magnet for the tabloids, overshadowing all else. Here are some of the headlines. Murder in a hospital, a man with delirium tremens kills another patient. Nurse for the insane goes crazy herself. Hospital patients slain. Woman in a straitjacket strangled. Sane man held as crazy at Bellevue. And the celebrities just kept on coming. Andy Warhol. Edie Sedgwick, and Michael David Chapman, the deranged killer of John Lennon. It goes without saying that Bellevue deserves better. At 275 years and counting, it remains an essential public asset, serving the poor, as is always done, and turning absolutely no one away. It is the place where the first ambulance service was deployed and where professional nursing began. It's a place where the first hospital and medical school was successfully combined, revolutionizing patient care and clinical instruction. If you look at the people, the doctors who went through there, they revolutionized American medicine in surgery, pathology, pediatrics, and public health. If you look at the medical students who went there, you have Walter Reed, who basically discovered the vector for yellow fever, Joseph Goldberger, 
involved in the nutritional mystery of pellagra, and Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin, the, you know, the men who did the polio vaccine, both came out of that hospital. And there was something else. Lost among the punchlines and the headlines is the fact that Bellevue has long been, in medical circles, a model of creative psychiatric care. In their time, the researcher people like Carl Bowman in insulin shock therapy, Loretta Bowman on childhood schizophrenia, and David Wexler in intelligent measurement were widely acclaimed. Bellevue's psychiatric ward, particularly its prison ward, played a vital role in the growth of forensic medicine. And its outpatients clinic for alcoholism and substance abuse are considered the finest in the world. Some reputations, however, appear unshakable. When the Bellevue Literary Review was launched 10 years ago, a leading newspaper made this all too clear. Quote, it seems fitting, teased the New York Times, that Bellevue Hospital, where writers have been committed in the extreme of mental collapse, will now have a literary journal. <laughs> another joke, another drum roll, but America's premier public hospital carries on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I realize I forgot to introduce myself before. I'm uh, Suzanne McConnell, one of the two fiction editors at Bellevue Literary Review. Um, so our next reader will be Amanda Opter. She's the author of The Wishing Tomb, winner of the 2012 Perugia Press Award, and The Glass Crib, which won the 2010 Zone 3 Press First Book Award. She's the editor at Pebble Lake Review and lives in Houston. from right here because I'm teeny tiny and you're not going to be able to see me over there. I mean, like, eyes up. So I will be reading from right here. This is better. Yeah? Okay. Um, so I want to thank, actually, before, I don't have very many poems to read, just a handful, but I want to thank Bellevue um, for having me here. I was telling Raphael that they held a very special place in my heart. Um, they were one of the first girls that ever took any of my work when I was actually an undergrad. So I'm greatly indebted to Bellevue. Okay, so the first poem I'm gonna read is called Nothing But the Shape. In the light you can no longer see, the light on the soap dish, the bottles of cologne and shampoo. I wanted to touch your hair, fill you on the floor, your last breath. From the doorway, it didn't look like you, Face turned toward the clothes hamper, one foot kicked into the garbage can, hands still clutching your blue toothbrush. Mouth slack, eyes open to counter, tile, ceiling. How is it that I have forgotten how many years your body has become white roots, a box of ash? At times you fill the room I walk into, the smell of you as though you've been there rocking in a chair, reading, never dead, but waiting for me to enter with a basket of laundry, a plate of fruit, some toy you left behind that we've both outgrown. My hello, nothing but the shape my mouth takes, the air you feel when you press your fingers to my lips. 
And the next poem is The Bottom Drawer. Tucked beneath my mother's shirts and camisoles, a paper bag of prayer cards, I find my brother's pajamas. I want to take them out, understand how she can spend an afternoon in an empty house with them. Her at the table with a cup of tea, raising the sleeve to her cheek, her nose thinking of him, how she kissed his stubble cheek, closed each eyelid. I wonder if she wears them or how often, if at night she slips into bed with the shirt, cradles him back into her. I unfold them on the bed for her to find, spread out as though he was still there, brushing his teeth, water running in the bathroom, a blue towel shook dry. Each arm uncrossed and flattened, the flannel pants draped over the bed, as though someone meant to wear them, but chose something else instead. And this is the thundering. Late August, you are a cigarette burn in radio lit dusk. The availability of means, cold steel on your tongue. Your mouth fills with what becomes massive history, hole in the throat, your punctured brain on a back wall. Your name rain smeared, inking the street, every floor you've walked. Beside the door, a pair of shoes, an umbrella, your black coat, things and minutes you will no longer need carry with you. In the white noise of fan hum, car horns, you roll bullets in your palm. You want for a moment to still this, a book left open on the table, the rain light, cooled coffee in the glass pot. The first sign is early waking, the failure of sleep. The last is how you sit in your green chair and write your name at the end of a page, crush paper and ash into a bowl. You move in and out of air. The thundering dark calls you. Close the window. And that poem, actually, I should say, was for <coughs> Liam Rector. This next poem is called The Disordered Body. And actually, I should give you a little tiny bit of context. This entire book is a lyrical history of New Orleans um, called The Wishing Tomb. And The Disordered Body is one of my yellow fever, 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 yellow fever slash American plague um, poems. The Disordered Body. Rain falls from the black skies daily, the city a shroud of rot. Garbage and heat and humidity, the bright stink of bodies. The body a branch after lightning, a language of fever, delirium. At the riverfront, our children watch boats come and go, scratch their dark arms until they bleed. What language must we speak to keep them safe? Every prayer a tongue of fire, every song a child's cry deep into the night. A child who unfolds her body into dark sweat, damp hair. We are drowning in this mosquito dust, our bodies inside a sea of stings. 
We are emptying our pails and wash buckets, and still they settle into hairlines, fingertips. We have long practiced disaster. We do not hide in our beds and closets, close a door, a mouth. We do not say it will not come. It will come. It will bring its terrible song, hum it into our houses. And I have two more from a sort of manuscript in progress that Bellevue recently took. This is called The Sister Born Again, 1988. The sister comes into her new family as a cardboard box, a one-eyed animal with the tongues of her shoes smacking the concrete sidewalk of the adoption agency. She holds a bear in her right hand, the new mother's thumb in her left. On the drive home, she pulls Kleenex from its cardboard sleeve, watches each one flutter down the highway. She listens to the wind blur, the green exit signs, the sun setting in the distance. As any small animal, she practices escape, finds the unlocked door too easy to resist. At 60 miles per hour, she reaches for the handle, presses her body against the door's weight until it flies open. One shoe tumbles away from her. One shoe remains on its tiny foot. And the last one is December 16th, six years later. My sister calls to tell the story again. A dark road, swerve of headlights, how she arched through the night air, the wheels that kept spinning, a far red siren. Each detail pieced from accident photographs, bystander reports, late night cop shows, I listen to the story and stir vegetables and oil on the stove. I want to say, you died in the field for four minutes. You do not remember what you remember. I want to tell her of the bag of effects handed to me at the hospital, the blood-stained bracelet, the brown sandals wreathed in damp grass. I went to tell her of the hospital room, its little window frosted with cold, how I went behind a curtain, placed my face in my hands, but I do not. I wait for the ending of this story, for her to run out of memory of tall grass, car horns. I wait to sit alone in the kitchen's slant windows, for the silence to break inside my throat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Um, our next reader is uh, Jacob L. Friedman. He's currently chief resident of inpatient psychiatry at the Harvard Longwood Psychiatric Residency Training Program in Boston. Um, he's written and lectured on a broad range of topics and is the self-proclaimed world's expert on an exceedingly rare medication side effect called Olanzapine-induced granulocytosis. <laughs> Good job. 
Hopefully nobody here has that. Uh, all right, uh, this is a piece about my time uh, working as a neurologist when I was an intern at Brigham and Women's Hospital. To the untrained eye, neurology can appear to be a sadistic profession. Many of our patients are comatose, and our daily exams consist of pinching their fingers and toes as hard as we can, documenting that for the ninth straight day, there's no reaction to this painful stimuli. As I lament this to Duncan, my fellow psychiatry resident who has also been rented out to the neurology consult service, he completes a physical by hollering into a patient's left ear. It's obvious that our patient is unresponsive to verbal commands. And when I tell Duncan to keep it down, he tells me that his wife screams at him just about every night. Why can't he have a turn to yell at some people, especially since they aren't able to yell back? As we walk in to see our next patient, I tell Duncan that I'm discouraged with my experience as a neurologist. We always seem to be called to evaluate horrendous cases after it's too late for any curative interventions. We then poke and prod our patients repetitively, pour cold water into their ears to see if their eyes spin around. We stick Q-tips into their noses and observe whether or not their grimaces are symmetrical. We have them memorize nonsensical lists of words like physicist, prism, and amphibian. We then call the psychiatry team, our true colleagues, when they kick us out of the room because we need someone to make a professional comment on our patients Effective dysregulation as evidenced by opposition to a complete and thorough medical evaluation. Somewhere in between here and the physical torture of crushing people's toenails with a reflex hammer, the psychological stressors of making them count backwards from 262 in increments of 13, I wonder if we'll ever get more information out of our patients by waterboarding them. Duncan suggests that we might use therapeutic lashings to help our patients who suffer from tremors. He suggests that maybe this will condition them to stop shaking when we tell them to touch their index fingers to their noses. When I give him a quizzical look, he reminds me that it worked for Pavlov and his dogs. Our next patient is Mr. Stevens. He's a 78-year-old veteran admitted to the hospital with a heart attack, and he required bypass surgery, which subsequently caused a stroke. This in turn landed him on, his, on our list this morning. We were consulted for something called pathological crime, and when Duncan reads this, he suggests that they probably should have consulted the patient's mother instead. I remind him that the patient is in his 70s and that the patient's mother is probably deceased. Duncan notes that the patient's mother probably died from shame, that her son was still crying like a baby even in his old age. I concur that the patient is likely yellow-bellied, and we knock on his door and then enter. Mr. Stevens smiles back at us and then barks, Who the hell are you? I smile back and show him my ID badge, forgetting that it rats me out as a psychiatrist. And he tells me, I don't need any damn psychiatrist. I'm not crazy. The other doctors already told me that. I apologize and I explain to him that Duncan and I have been exiled to the neurology consult service as part of our training. And that while we are in fact psychiatrists most of the time, today we're wearing our neurology hats even though we forgot to take off our psychiatry ID cards. Mr. Steven remarks that I also forgot to take off my psychiatry beard, and he re-emphasizes, I don't need any damn psychiatrist, I'm not crazy, I told you already. He then begins sobbing hysterically, and I hand him a tissue from the box on the table next to him. He takes and dabs his cheeks, and tells me a third time he's not crazy. 
It's just that there's some damn thing in my brain that's broken and I cry like a little Girl Scout for no damn reason. Duncan and I sit down and Mr. Stevens proceeds to tell us the story of how he was diagnosed with a small stroke after his bypass surgery a few days ago. He's since experienced at least six episodes of bizarre crying every day. The only other neurological symptom he's experienced is a numbness in his right leg, but otherwise the stroke left him in pretty good shape. When Duncan and I pull out our reflex hammers, he shakes his head and starts crying. This is exactly what I mean. I just start crying for no damn reason. I'm not sad, I just start crying, it's ridiculous. I reach to hand him another tissue, but he waves it away as he's already stopped his tears and seems back to his cantankerous self. I ask him if we can examine him and he starts crying again. I don't need to be examined anyways. You idiots poked me just about everywhere last time I was here after my first stroke and you didn't find anything then and you're not gonna find anything now. Why don't you go poke each other instead, you perverts? <laughs> Duncan and I nod to Mr. Stevens and bid him good day. We tell him that we'll discuss the case with our boss and that we'll make some appropriate recommendations to the primary medical team. Mr. Steven smiles, and then cries, and then smiles and waves us goodbye. Duncan and I page our boss, who happens to be the world's expert in epilepsy in pregnant women. This means that she has about 23 seconds to discuss any case that is unrelated to either pregnancy or epilepsy. She calls us back in exactly nine seconds. She then explains that we'll have to present the case quickly because she has four patients waiting in clinic, a lecture to give at the medical school later this afternoon, and she's consulting with a pharmacology corporation on the other line to make some extra pocket money to pay for her stepdaughter's Suzuki violin lessons. She then explains that she really doesn't need to hear anything more about the case because she already received the chart online and knows that the patient clearly has what's called pseudo-bulbar affect. She tells us that we can treat it with any standard antidepressant, like Zoloft or whatever else we want to do, but just to make the recommendations and move on, because she also has to edit a review article on postpartum seizure evaluation for the American Journal of Neurology before it hits press tomorrow. Duncan wonders out loud after we hang up the phone if our boss might have put in some extra thought had we told her that Mr. Stevens was 36 weeks pregnant with an epileptic fetus. <laughs> he asks me what I know about pseudobulbar affect after this because all he knows is that it's abbreviated PBA, which is different from PBR, which is his favorite drink. I know even less about PBA, so we decide to look it up online and figure out what the heck it is so that way we can recommend an appropriate treatment. As we sit down and log on to a computer to search for pseudobulbar affect, I ask Duncan if he thinks that the New York Times would run a front page article if they knew that the neurology consultants at the most prestigious teaching hospital in Boston were getting all their moves from Google. <laughs> Duncan remarks that they would only care if we were tea partiers protesting our socialist government takeover of the healthcare system. Wikipedia comes up first and says that pseudobulbar affect is characterized by pathological crying. Duncan suggests that maybe we should try getting Mr. Stevens some medical marijuana to induce pathological laughing and nacho eating. <laughs> this would probably even things out, but I remind him that we aren't practicing medicine in California, so we continue our search online. After brief stops at eHow, Twitter Health, and finally WebMD, I find the first-line medication for management of pseudobulbar affect, and I send a page to Mr. Stevens' primary cardiology team telling them to start the drug. 
I asked Duncan if he finds neurology to be too reductionist. He hands me a tissue and asks me if I'm going to pathologically cry. <laughs> Duncan tells me that he misses psychiatry's taboo on touching patients, but that he finds it fascinating to pore over MRI scans and to correlate anatomy with sensory, motor, and mood-related symptoms. Duncan is excited by the idea that we will map the brain and find the exact location to plant an electrode in someone's brain so that way every time their wife yells at them, they can turn, you haven't taken out the trash, into how about a margarita. He's convinced this is happening soon, and it will be better than cocaine without the risks of addiction and losing one's medical license. I ask him if as a psychiatrist, he is concerned by the risk of breaking down human emotions into electrical currents reducing paranoia, love, and creativity into ions drifting across protein channels. Duncan tells me he's more concerned by the unchecked proliferation of nuclear technology in unstable Middle Eastern regimes, subsequent risk of dirty bombs coming onto American soil through Canada, and the recent unavailability, un the recent unavailability of organic buffalo milk yogurt at the local Trader Joe's. I agree, and he asked me if it's really any worse than the psychiatric medications that would take away Mr. Stevens' tears, but also neuter his personality. I asked Duncan why he keeps on talking about neutering, and he said that he just saw a Price is Right rerun, and Bob Barker reminded him to have his pet sprayed and neutered. And he says, furthermore, neutering is a technically appropriate term because the pills we prescribe double as libido killers. I momentarily consider these grave problems within our field, but then I smile because I don't have to come up with any solutions until I finish my eight-week contract with the neurologists. Duncan says we should also appreciate these last precious weeks of caring for unconscious patients before we resume our quest as psychiatrists. I agree, and as we walk down the hall to see our next comatose patient, Duncan says that neurology can be reductionist and it can be sadistic, but at least we get to whack people with reflex hammers. This reminds me of the old adage, laughter is the best medicine. Um, and I just want to make a comment about that because people often ask, I mean, I'm also, I often find myself reassuring people who want to submit to us that it's not all somber and sober and about dying. That's, and dying can be quite funny too, we found out from reading pieces submitted to us. So. Um, our next reader is um, Hal Surowitz. He's the former poet laureate of Queens, New York. He's the co-winner of the Noir Con 2012 Poetry Contest and the author of a new collection of poems, Starry Cat Blues. He has uh, written poetry and prose about his experiences with Parkinson's disease and has work in the Bellevue Review and the anthology Beauty is a Verb, the New Poetry of Disability. And he is the author of 11 other books of poetry that have been translated into 14 languages. Thank you. You think crime and patience? <laughs> I use a good laugh. <laughs> You need to be, you have a need to be famous. 
my therapist said, I think you should get a job first. <laughs> if you look at all these famous people, they all had jobs. Get a job from somewhere. Otherwise, you'll be just famous in your own head. Like everyone else. Avoiding rigidity. It's the medicine that makes me shake, not the disease. It's the medicine that makes me shake, not the disease, I said. Then why take it? She said. If I stop, I'll be able to walk, I said. My body will become rigid. If I stopped, I wouldn't be able to walk, I said. My body would become rigid. R rigidity seems better than all that shaking you do, she said. I'm rather shaking than not be able to move. Rather shake than not be able to move, I said. Each to his own, she said. But if you were rigid, I wouldn't have to worry about you accidentally hitting me on the head. But if I couldn't move, I said, what would we do to make time pass? We do nothing, she said. We do that anyway. That's not me, by the way. <laughs> Some fire. An egg. An X. <laughs> Learning new words. My mom. Learning new words. My Parkinson's medicine makes my arms shake. The medical term is dyskinesia. Then, when a man you can learn new words. You, you, that's one of the benefits of the disease. You learn new words. You also learn new meanings for old words. When I say, my windows are wide open. When I say my windows are wide open, I'm not referring to the computer or those in the house. It means medication is working. my medication is working. A half-closed window means the medicine is wearing down. A window Everything I do will now become a struggle. I just pray the window won't get stuck. The speed of mice. When the Parkinson's medication wears down, I turn into Cinderella. I turn into Cinderella. 
my means of transportation slows down to the speed of a pumpkin pulled by mice. My shoes My shoes still fit my feet, but I take them off. They make too much noise. As I drag them across the floor. A strange name for hope, as elect. What's the name? Plenty if your neurologist prescribed it as the best hope for slowing down your Parkinson's. And then the only cure for life, then give me more life. If death is the only cure for life, then give me more life. The good thing about having Parkinson's is you don't actually see your symptoms becoming worse. You stay the same until you drop to the next level. You don't see yourself dropping. You only see your attempts to stay where you were. You become an unfriendlier you become on friendlier terms with your own death. Unlike Dylan Thomas's advice in the poem to his father. Rage against the dying of the light. You're not into raging. You're curious how you'll react, like a scientist using himself for the experiment. Johnny Appleseed. Johnny Appleseed. My favorite hero was Johnny Appleseed. I read books about him. I thought he'd be cool to plant I thought it'd be cool to plant seeds wherever I went, so I ever came back to visit and saw a tree where once there was nothing, I'd know I'd help change the place. I wanted people to say <laughs> You may not say much, but he leaves a lot of trees behind. And diagnosed with Parkinson's, I was happy my symptoms had a name. Who would want to suffer from a nameless disease? At least if one had Lou Gehrig's disease, one could identify with the great Yankee first baseman. Sir Parkinson excavated dinosaur bones, then assembled them. Not that I want to trade my disease for Garrick's, but at this point in my life, I'd rather have a ball thrown to me, at least I've caught balls before, than have to deal with an extinct species. The subject of extinction is too close to home. <laughs> Planned child. Planned child. 
I didn't get a good grade in my biology class. Mother read my report card. She wanted me to know. My parents really wanted me. Therefore, I should be doing a lot better in school. <laughs> and students. Who I didn't quite understand her logic, but I remember going to school the next day, looking at my classmates and wondering who was an accident and who was planned. It was hard to know. A step above cows. I read somewhere that a cow can only walk upstairs but not down. Even though I have Parkinson's, I'm a step ahead of a cow. I'm a step ahead of a cow. I can walk up or down without much trouble. And the one time I fell, I was walking up, but lost my balance and fell down, which proves. I'm a <laughs> because for a split second I had the choice of where to fall. Up or down. Up or down and unceremoniously took the down route because it takes you faster. To where you want to go. To where you want to go at the beginning of the stairs so I can do it right this time. On one side is her. I've been a Parkinson's patient for so long that I can do it in my sleep. I know. And I do. I curl up between my wife and the alarm clock on my night table. From my wife's side, I get affection. She never gets mad when I wake her up, stretching my legs. To delay them from becoming rigid. And from my clock, I get the assurance that time moves only one way. Forward. Forward. And that's the direction I'm going. I don't look back at what might have been if Parkinson's wasn't thrust upon me. I just try to bear my discomfort quietly. Without waking my wife too much. We just have a few more. <laughs> Mistaken for a turkey. Before you can cook a turkey, Father said, You have to buy one. You have to buy one. <laughs> we'd have to give thanks to supermarkets. If it wasn't for them, we'd have to shoot one to get one. It'd be dangerous to go outside. You may be mistaken for a turkey and shot. It's not the perfect excuse. Your Honor, he was walking like a turkey. <laughs> His neck was bent down. How could he not have been a turkey? Then he was imitating one. To, then he was imitating one to perfection. Overblown. What's hopeful about your problems, my therapist said, is they're just 
Typical anxieties. You, <laughs> you don't have any I haven't seen before. But what concerns me is your habit of enlarging. Your habit of your habit of enlarging them until they become almost unrecognizable. Luckily, you have me to recognize them. <laughs> I'm familiar with all your anxieties. I'm familiar with all your anxieties. I can tell which ones are coming. In a few moments, we're going to be revisited by your worry of taking up too much of my time. <laughs> but that's why I schedule my patients one after the other. So they can't. So they can't. <laughs> Put a little enjoyment in your life. Oh, um, I know that makes that I know more, more than that before name Jack. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, father said, which is why we didn't name you Jack. <laughs> we chose Harold. It means life in Hebrew. It means life in Hebrew. I am. Please show more signs of it. It's too late to change names. Oh, we did them. Wait, hold on. One more. We did these? Okay, that's all. <laughs> and thanks to Minter also. That was wonderful. Our next reader is Rafael Campo, who is a poet, essayist, and physician. He's recipient of a Guggenheim, a National Poetry Series Award, and a Lambda Literary Award, and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Um, his new book of poems, Alternative Medicine, is due out later this year from Duke University Press. Thanks for coming to hear us this morning. I'm going to read uh, just two pieces uh, from the 10th anniversary issue of BLR. And I'm just delighted to be here supporting BLR and thank them for all their support over the years. So this is an essay uh, called Illness as Muse. It is not unusual, after I've given a poetry reading, for some impossibly young writer from the audience to remark over the post-literary pretzels and Diet Coke, wow, your stuff is really depressing. <laughs> One especially unkind reviewer of my books proclaimed, in a similar but perhaps more impatiently dire vein, quote, bad things happen in Rafael Campo's poems. Coming from a fellow poet, and none of us are generally associated with boundless joy or even middling cheerfulness, his indictment seemed inordinately cruel. 
Even my devoted spouse counsels me after reading my latest villanelle about botulism or ode to schizophrenia. Honey, maybe you should think about lightening things up a bit. Try as I might to take all of this concern to heart, to see butterflies or snowflakes or flowers as more suitable or at least less foreboding objects of literary address. I keep finding myself drawn to write about illness. Like anyone, I despise the kind of person who slows down his car at the sight of a roadside accident, craning his necks in the hopes of glimpsing some awful carnage. I hate television shows like House and Grey's Anatomy for making a ludicrous spectacle of illness. I can't stand it when innocent family members solicit advice about their hypertension and cholesterol, because it seems to me there is so much in the world that is more interesting to discuss. I grew impatient even with my endearing grandmother, when she was still alive and would ask me my advice about her blood sugar. When I feel I'm about to fall ill myself from such constant noxious exposures, I dig out my well-worn copy of Susan Sontag's scathingly sober illness as metaphor. Quote, my point is that illness is not a metaphor, and the most truthful way of regarding illness, and the healthiest way of being ill, is the one most purified of, most resistant to metaphoric thinking, Sontag says. And I think, take that, Sharon Olds. <laughs> the romantic view is that illness exacerbates consciousness, she goes on to say, and I crow, take that, Franz Wright. <laughs> what a relief it is to understand illness for what it really is. Matter of fact pathophysiology, a boring, unpleasant, and decidedly non-revelatory experience. Illness is a problem for the human imagination only in so much as we might seek dispassionately scientific methods to cure it, while we avoid the inevitably destructive pressures it exerts on our fragile psyches. Of course, the next morning always comes and I find myself in my clinic again, the exam room speaking aloud in all of its blatant metaphors. The huge clock above where my patients sit implacably measuring lifetimes. The space itself narrow and compressed as a sonnet. And immediately I'm back to thinking about writing. Soon enough, my patients start to arrive, and, they want, and the way they want me to understand what they are feeling only immerses me more deeply in languages compelling alchemy. The pain is like a cold, bitter wind blowing through my wound, murmurs a young, infertile woman from Guatemala with what I have diagnosed much less eloquently as chronic pelvic pain. Please, doctor, can you heal me? I regard her from across the desk and feel grateful for the computer terminal more immediately in front of me, which allows me to type a little medical jargon into my note before having actually to speak to her. Send her for an exploratory laparoscopy, growls Susan Sontag in the back of my mind. But she's already had that procedure, along with several ultrasounds and pap smears, innumerable blood and urine tests, a hysterosalpingogram, a colonoscopy, and a trial, ironically, of birth control pills. We have had this conversation before, which I realize is another way of saying we are together part of a narrative, a story, a story in which irony matters, in which understanding metaphor. Might her pain be a wordless expression of her deep sadness at her inability to have a child? 
or perhaps the consequence of some trauma she has not disclosed, seems to have some irrefutable value. Now I am thinking again about writing, but not a prescription for the pain medication she always refuses. Instead, I am thinking about writing a poem like Sharon Olds. I am thinking about the metal speculum clattering in the sink while she sobbed softly after I performed her last pap smear, as if it were trying to reiterate something about coldness and bitterness, or what we hear and can't hear, or pain and objection. Perhaps something about this young woman reminds me of my grandmother, herself an incurable and incurably hopeful immigrant, which only amplifies my narrative impulse. After all, it was my grandmother who first inspired in me a love of stories. Her words were all she could give me of our homeland, Cuba, that exotic and forbidden place, her own unspeakably painful void. My grandmother was afflicted with what seemed an unfair burden of illnesses. Her treatments for her ailments seemed just as varied as the ailments themselves, from the pills she dutifully swallowed each morning, some prescribed by her doctors, some dispensed out of her friends' personal hoards, to the prayers she recited before her own tiny shrine to the Virgin Mary, from the magical, strange-smelling potajes she brewed with roots and herbs that can't be found in American supermarkets, to the sheer will to endure that seemed manifest in her meticulously kept apartment and her constant humming to herself of old Cuban songs. Some of her illnesses were familiar ones, like diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis. Others were conditions that were utterly untranslatable from Spanish to English, like the terrible patatu, some kind of debilitating nervous attack, or the more insidious but equally awful retortero, which could afflict her for weeks or even months. Through her experiences, I saw firsthand just how indistinct could be the boundary between the tersely biomedical and the wildly superstitious. She took gold for her painful joints that the rheumatologist prescribed, the same doctor who ridiculed her use of traditional Cuban remedies. As an impressionable child, I marveled at the idea of this precious metal somehow gilding my grandmother from within, protecting her joints from damage by the power of our wonder at it. Decades later, when she finally died of kidney failure induced by the toxicity of what proved to be a useless treatment for her, I learned the meaning of irony for the first time. If her rheumatologist in his starched white coat could have been so wrong about one form of treatment, maybe he was just as mistaken about the mystical powers of what was prescribed by the curanderos, whom he regarded as, as ignorant. I am reminded here of one of my residents who was called to run a code on a patient of hers in the hospital just as she was about to leave for the day and enjoy some downtime with her young family at home. She had followed all the biomedical protocols and algorithms perfectly, barking orders to the nurses and interns with all the confidence she could muster. However, like most end-of-life interventions in the hospital, this one too proved, proved futile and the patient died. It was only weeks later when she had the chance to write about the experience in a poem she created for a reflective writing group that is now part of the residency curriculum in our hospital. Did she feel she could do justice to the entire experience, aspects of which she purposefully had shut out at the bedside in the perceived acuity of the situation? 
Perhaps most salient of all that she had sacrificed to the biomedical exigencies of the moment was the tuning out of the family who were present in the room. She wished she hadn't ignored them, but instead had allowed them to stop her before a full 30 minutes had passed, when it was already amply clear to them that their mother was dead. It is precisely situations like these that have so long been cited by medical educators as a primary reason for teaching distancing to medical trainees. To be able to function in an emergency, one cannot regard that patient as a whole person, but rather must focus on the malignant arrhythmia or the life-threatening electrolyte imbalance in order to implement the appropriate technologies and in turn save life at all cost. Narrative has no place here many would argue. We must not be distracted by the color of her nail polish or that the slack blood pressure cuff hung down around her wrist like some horrible bracelet or the wails of her children, all details my resident had absorbed in spite of her conscious effort not to register them. Yet, if we begin to enlarge the context as narrative demands that we do, if we start to consider that our actions have impact on others have their own relationship with the person we see exclusively as a patient and not as a mother as her children do, not as a suffering soul as the chaplain does. We might act differently. We might move to comfort the patient and protect her dignity in her last minutes on earth. We might seek to console her children as they face a tremendous loss. We might pray together with the chaplain in the hopes that she did not die with the last rites that are soul-saving in many religious traditions. Whether storytelling has a place here is worth considering very deeply. It certainly proved indispensable after the fact, and the poem written by the resident who failed to resuscitate her patient in the hospital perhaps has done her an even greater service by immortalizing her. None of us lives forever. Many of us might have our lives prolonged by biomedical interventions whose financials costs are exorbitant. Too frequently do we question the toll they also exact on our humanity. The fantasies about what causes illness that Sontag railed against, cancer results from repressed anger, AIDS is a punishment from God, have been replaced by even more deluded fantasies that science can somehow prevent death. The only way we can defy our own mortality is through acts of the imagination by creating the stories and sculptures and paintings and poems that will outlast us, but will always be animated by our will to have created them. Even our greatest scientific discoveries can be understood in this same way. They are not truly ends in themselves by which we can ever hope to explicate away our suffering, but are rather part of the same process of dreaming and desiring, wishing and wondering. When I visited my grandmother in the hospital in the last weeks before she died, I cried for a while into her shoulder. But by then I was a young doctor, so I soon headed to the nurse's station and pored over her hospital chart while she lay propped up in her bed, the glass and metal ICU like the internal workings of some incomprehensible machine designed for time travel. Countless hours and hundreds of thousands of dollars had gone into my attempt to transform myself from a long-term financial burden on my parents to someone with a respectable money-making career. She was in heart failure despite being on dialysis, and I tried desperately to understand her fluid imbalances. 
Her eyes and nose were dutifully tabulated in a sequence that suggested a code whose rules I might decipher. In my exasperation, I looked up from the record of her gradual demise and caught a glimpse of her as she fingered her rosary, praying to herself with a peaceful smile on her face, taking her own measure of her receding life. When I write about her now, all that data that seemed so important then have faded to insignificance. But it is that one cherished detail in my memory, this one little story, that always makes her come alive to me again. And I'm going to close with uh, a poem, uh, since I bill myself as a poet. And uh, before I do that, I want to thank my fellow readers. I want to thank DLR. And I want to thank all of you for coming. And I hope we have a few minutes for questions. On the wards. I pass you in a hurry on my way to where another woman who I know is dying of a stroke that in the end is nothing worse than what is killing you. Same gurney, same bruised arms and mute IV. You wait for what might be a final test. It's something in the way you look at me that makes me realize you have your own mistakes you think you're paying for, your own ungrateful kids, your own unspeakable pain. Yet you look at me, still desperate for just another human being to look kindly back at you, to recognize in you the end is not far off, is not so unimaginable. Years ago, I watched a patient of mine say goodbye to life. She was alone like you, alone like me. She was in agony. She looked at me, and I, afraid to be the last thing here on earth she saw, twisted my head to look away. I almost do the same to you, afraid you might imagine me as later you lie dying, but I don't. Instead, I look at you remorselessly, the way I hope that someday I am seen, the way each one of us deserves to be imagined, and wonder at your astonishing beauty. Thank you. time for questions, but um, you can come up afterwards and talk to the readers. Um, but I want to thank you all and to invite you to come to the Bellevue Literary Review and Bellevue Literary Press table, which is conveniently located just across the hall at 2074. Bellevue Literary Review subscriptions are 50% off. We're selling issues for half five bucks. And um, all the Bellevue Literary Press books are discounted highly. So please, please avail yourself of that and come talk to us there. And please come up and talk to the writers. We have about five minutes before we're supposed to give up this room. Thank you very much for coming. Thank all the readers very much. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org. Dot org.